Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Genesis once again, to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, our text is going to be taken from verses 1 through 5. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. And then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. Once again, let's pray for the help of God as we open up his word. Holy Father, we thank you and bless you that you've given to us even this primitive record, ever so brief and yet so profound. And we plead with you, Lord, that you would help us to enter into its meaning, that we would expound it aright. We pray that any way in which we don't understand things perfectly, that you would continue to lead us into an understanding of your word. We plead with you, therefore, for your spirit. And we pray that we might not only understand, but that we would respond in the right way to what you would have to say. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, some of you know that while I am reading and while I'm writing out my sermon, I listen to classical music. I enjoy other types of music, but classical music has a depth to it that I especially enjoy, and also because it doesn't have words most of the time, it does not a distraction to me in the way that other types of music might be at such a time. And I do this not only because of the pleasure that the music gives, but it also relieves the boredom of study, and it is a way in which I find myself invigorated as I continue to work. And one of my favorite programs on WMHT on Saturday evening is the New York Philharmonic This Week. And it not only features current recordings of the New York Philharmonic Orchestra, but also recordings that were, go all the way back to the first time when recordings were made. And perhaps there is no New York uh, composer and maestro who is more famous than Len Leonard Bernstein. He, wrote a massive amount of uh, material himself. And in addition to conducting the New York Phil for 11 seasons, he conducted major orchestras all over the world up until his death in 1990. And in one of the recent broadcasts of this program, Bernstein conducted the orchestra in the performance of Beethoven's Third Symphony, commonly known as the Eroica of our, its a name that uh, speaks of its heroism as being uh, conveyed. And it is this symphony that many musicologists identify as introducing the Romantic era of music. And the Romantic era, it followed what was called the classical era of music. In the classical era, which is epitomized by composers like Haydn and Mozart, the music is characterized by elegance and balance. It's like a formal dance in which everybody dances and prances around and goes in just the right places and just at the right time and everything is graceful and predictable. But the Romantic era, by contrast, it tends to appeal to the full range of emotions of the hearer. Not only feelings of happiness and serenity which might go with such a little dance, but also of tension and of conflict. The romantic composers, they often wrote tone poems, and this would tell a story. They reflect the experience, oftentimes, of a struggling hero. And whereas classical composers were more consistently tonal, 
Romantic composers often use tonal clashes to bring out conflict and struggle as envisioned by the composer. For instance, Beethoven's sixth symphony, known as his pastoral symphony, it depicts at one point a dark storm and has lots of clashes in the music. Thankfully, it doesn't last very long, but it's followed by a beautiful serene segment or movement in which you can envision as it were the sun once again coming out and the little lambs frolicking on the hills. At least that's the way I envision it. And so the full range of emotions evoked by these symphonies is one of the reasons why Beethoven is my favorite composer. And the dark segments, they tend to highlight the serene movements, and thereby they move the listener even more, I think, than if everything is nice and neat and happy from beginning to end. In my opinion, Beethoven has never been surpassed. Now, in one of Bernstein's lectures on Beethoven's Eroica Symphony, he begins by asking, what is it like to conduct Eroica? And face to face, he says, with Beethoven the giant, Zeus with his thunderbolt, Thor with his hammer. In the first movement, the hammer blows rain thick and fast with two opposing chords. There's no let up for, of the tension for the first 15 minutes. And then he adds that the, that the whole the whole symphony is not all howl, howling and stomping, but also it contains some of the most beautiful melodies ever composed. It not only has massive battle scenes, but serenity and beauty and peace. Well, the broadcast of the New York Philharmonic performance that I referenced to a moment ago, in that particular lecture that he gave in connection with this broadcast, he spoke more at length about about the, the symphony. And he says the Eroica was, as he puts it, simplicity made manifest. Immediately there's a statement, a bare fact. Beethoven started with a fact, and I copied this all out as I listened, uh, copied it out in hand. So I'm, I'm quoting exactly what he says. Beethoven started with a fact, an axiom, and his art consists in examining that fact with so unusual a range of vision that the axiom becomes a living experience. In the Eroica Symphony, we are face to face with Beethoven's dialectic, the wedding of simplicity and complexity. And then he goes on to explain how he begins with two triad chords, and they're just three notes in each one, and how then he builds his massive 50-minute symphony upon those two triads. He takes this extremely simple material and he enlivens it. He, he, he makes it to grow, complicating it in oddly new ways, and here I'm quoting again, with constant surprises and twists and unexpected discoveries. It is this element of the unexpected that is so often associated with Beethoven. But surprise alone is not enough. What makes his music so great is that no matter how shocking and, and no matter how shocking and unexpected the surprise may be, it always somehow gives the impression as soon as it has happened at that moment that it was the only right thing that could have happened at that moment. Inevitability is the keynote. It's as though Beethoven had an inside track to truth and rightness so that he could say the most amazing and sudden things with complete authority and cogency. Well, I'm not going to go through the whole lecture. It was a long lecture. It goes into much more details beyond those opening uh, bars. But he goes on to elaborate the way in which the whole premise of the symphony, which is struggle, is expressed in the first eight seconds of the symphony. And building upon those first eight seconds in those opening triads, he continues to find new meanings in his basic material. He goes on to describe the ways in which, as I think of it, Beethoven he takes a little idea and he builds a massive architecture with endless variety, seemingly, and yet unified by the same simple themes. Well, in my thinking, I've gone through all this detail, and I hope you didn't mind me taking a little time to do this. But in my thinking, the Bible is, in many ways, like a Beethoven symphony. It's not like a little dance in which everything's nice and tidy and predictable and, and you just prance around on the floor and have a, everybody feels good. On one hand, it reflects the realities of the human condition in a fallen world. 
and on the other hand, the beauty and the wonder of redemption. And like Beethoven's Eroica, it begins by announcing several themes with the utmost simplicity and brevity. And this is what we have here in the first chapters of the book of, Redem uh, book of, of Genesis. When I listen to Beethoven's Eroica, even though it lasts a full 50 minutes, when it's, on, when it's done, I'm aching for more. It's, it's, it's just, you don't get tired of it because there's so many surprises. And likewise, when I read God's redemptive story, even though it's a massive book, it never fails to surprise me as I read it and consider it once again because it comes back again and again to the same themes, the same simple ideas, and yet they appear more beautiful and they're expanded upon. And they appear as they're unfolding, as in Beethoven's symphonies, almost like they're inevitable parts of God's grand plan. And they appear, therefore, as if they, they're the right thing that happened. It couldn't have been anything else that happened as it was written. But that. Well, the chapter in Genesis that we have finished studying, chapter 3, it's filled with dark tones and jarring events of the fall. And as in a Beethoven symphony, our master composer, he comes back to the simple themes of depravity and consequent suffering again and again. And also in chapter three, we have a simple expression of the theme of redemption in the promise of the conflict that will take place between two seas, two spiritual families, each with its champion, Satan the serpent and Christ the other champion. And one of those champions, our Lord Jesus, will eventually crush the head of the other. And we also have a simple depiction of substitutionary atonement and the way which God provided the skins of slain animals to cover Adam and Eve in their nakedness and in their sin. Now, as we come to chapter 4, we encounter a transition to life now outside of Eden. And although God's redemptive plan will still be carried out, as long as we live life in this fallen world, the suffering and death that we endure as a result of sin will hurt. And there are therefore dark aspects to life in this world. And the initial setting of these sad realities is that of the first family. It's the darkness that comes out right away in one family. Already the prophecy of the two seeds in Genesis 3 began to be fulfilled. The two seeds are represented right away by two sons. And these sons represent the predicted two humanities in the fallen world. Cain, the firstborn, is consumed by pride. And in his anger, he murders his believing brother. And Abel, the first in the line of the godly, he's justified by faith. He's persecuted by his brother and he becomes the first martyr in history. As Genesis expands on this theme in the coming chapters, we witness not just two individuals, but two whole cultures emerging from Cain and from Abel. From Cain comes what Augustine calls the city of man, characterized by pride and rebellion against God. From Abel arises the city of God, in which believers seek to glorify God in humble faith. And like the opening bars in Beethoven's Eroica, these two lines, or these two lines of, of seed, the de descendants, these two cultures, and these two cities, they still continue to this day. And what began with a Cain and Abel in Genesis 4, this remains as two humanities which are irreconcilably divided from one another, and not only in this life, but it will be so in all eternity. One humanity, destined to live forever in heaven by the grace of God, and the other humanity destined for the punishment of hell in keeping with the justice of God. Now, following the pattern of the Puritans, our treatment of the opening verses of this chapter are going to begin with exposition, and then we will proceed to the doctrine of the passage. And we're going to spend most of our time with the exposition. We're going to be seeking to apply it along the way. And because of the narrative style of this passage, we're simply calling this exposition part of the sermon the story that's told. Let's take up this story. It consists of a twofold tale. 
a tale of two sons, first of all, and then a tale of two offerings. It begins with a tale of two sons. And we read that tale in verses 1 and 2. And the two sons that are described, they were born into a God-fearing home. Adam and Eve were sinners, but they were not pagans. It was a great blessing to be brought up in a godly home, even of imperfectly sanctified believers, to be shown the way of salvation, to be taught the way of, of God by worship and by prayer. That's a blessing. It's a minority that have that privilege. So you, if you have that privilege, young person, you are exceedingly blessed by God just by that fact. But you who are parents, according to God's sovereign purpose, you may have two sons, and one of them might be a Cain, and one of them might be an Abel. But you raise them both with the hope that they're both going to be Abel's. Well, in verses 1 and 2, there are two births and two occupations to these two sons. So as we take up the tale of the two sons, notice with me how the story begins first with these two births. And here we have it in the first two verses. I'll read it again. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. And she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now having been driven out of the garden, the first couple resumed their lives and they turned to each other in love. And we read that Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived. And the use of the Hebrew word for new, it, re it respects, or it de describes intimate relations. It conveys the biblical ideal for intimacy within the bonds of marriage. And it's noteworthy that the godly sexual relationship depicted in the Bible is one in which married partners fully know one another. It's a beautiful relationship in stark contrast in which Partners exploit one another, as it is in the world. And rather than being an end in itself, this intimacy that's set forth here and elsewhere, it means, it, it's a means to the end. And the end is a deeper and more intimate knowledge of one another as husband and wife. And far from the erotic promiscuity and indulgence in the world, it conveys the idea of personal intimate relationships enjoyed with the consciousness of God's purpose. And notice that the text adds that he had this knowledge, or he knew Eve, and it's called his wife, Eve. And this reinforces, again, God's design for this kind of a relationship to exist only within marriage. Now, at least early in a godly marriage, one purpose of such intimacy is the birthing of children. Now, in one way or another, every godly parent has a high hope for the children that God gives them. But apart from Mary and apart from Joseph's anticipation of the birth of the promised Messiah, I think in the whole of history that's happened ever since this event, there has never been a measure, a greater measure of hope and excitement about a child that might be coming along than it was with Adam and Eve as they anticipated the birth of their first son. Now notice with me what we have here with respect to that first child. He's given the name Cain, and we'll notice in a little bit the other, the birth of the other child, but especially the emphasis is upon the birth of Cain in our narrative. And as she names her son, Eve says by way of explanation, as the New King James puts it, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Now, the verb that's translated acquired, or it's translated gotten, that's equally good in the New American, it sounds like Cain in the original. And when a word for a person or thing sounds like another, it's called assonance. That's, that's a figure of speech that takes place. And in this place, the Hebrew name Cain, it sounds like the word acquired. And so it's possible that Eve gives him this name to commemorate the fact that she had acquired him or gotten him from the Lord. And it's more important than knowing the precise meaning, though, of this name Cain, is what we see in Eve's assertion about this matter. 
She says, I have acquired a man from the Lord. The English standard, it adds the words, the help of. I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. But those words, the help of, are not in the original. The original merely states, I have gotten a man with the Lord. And the New American, it also has the help of, but it italicizes it, letting you know that the translators have have supplied those words. And that's one of the main weaknesses of the English standard is it doesn't italicize where the translators have inserted really what's their own interpretation by adding other words. Well, while giving birth, Eve, he feels for the, she feels for the first time the effects now of the curse on her personnel, on personally. And this whole process was now the fulfillment of that promise that there would be, or a threat that there would be pain that would come to her as a result of her sin. Her labor pains remind her of God's judgment. And when she made it through the terrible ordeal, the fact that she and her son made it through this ordeal, both of them alive still, she feels ecstatic that they had come out through this whole terrible ordeal, both of them intact and alive. And so her statement is an expression of great gratitude to the Lord for what she believed was the fulfillment of the promised seed. And we're reminded here that whenever the Lord gives us a child, it's not just the biological factors being at work and out comes a child. That's not what happens. A child that's given to you, dear people, is a sovereign gift of God. And therefore, we are to pray to God for the children we hope to have. And we are to raise them up in his behalf and according to his directions. And what Eve understood is true of every child born into our homes. Psalm 127.3 says children are a heritage of the Lord. And with this in mind, babies in the womb, we need to remember and we need to consider them not just as the biological property of women, but they are a treasure that belongs to the Lord. They are a priceless gift on loan from God, a stewardship for which parents must give an account. And this is polar opposite of the thinking of this generation that we live in. It thinks of just fetal tissue, and it's in the woman's, woman's uterus, so it's her property. She can just get rid of property whenever she wants to. That's the idea that we have in our society. The babies in a mother's womb, however, are a stewardship for which we will give an account to the giver of all life. And this was supremely so in the case of Eve's first child. Now put yourself in Eve's place. After you've been driven out of the garden with your husband, you become pregnant. And it's wonderful beyond any description. She thinks perhaps there's something good in this fallen world after all. Neither Adam or Eve had ever seen a pregnancy before. They didn't know anything about tummies getting big. They'd never seen it, never had been experienced before. And when that first little child moved in her womb, Eve must have, must have been ecstatic. Adam, it's kicking me. Now, what are you talking about? Well, come on over here. Put your hand on my tummy. It's kicking me. Can you feel it? How exciting that must have been. And surely they must have counted the months and the weeks and the days. Well, they didn't know it would take nine months at that point, but they must have been calculating in some way how long they think it might have taken. And at last, the child was born. And Eve held in her arms the one that she and Adam had been waiting for. God had promised her a seed that would be a deliverer. And surely, in anticipation of a quick salvation, they must have wondered, could this be the one? Could this be the deliverer? How delighted they were. Maybe God's going to save us right now. But this was not the ultimate seed that God had promised. And if Eve was expecting an immediate savior, she would have been, and she must have been, bitterly disappointed. Adam and Eve didn't know that what they actually held in their arms was a little future murderer and that the tragic history of the human race written in blood had just begun. The first human child would not be a Christ but a killer 
and as such would be the head of that part of the human race that would be an implacable enemy of the godly seed that was yet to come. However, even though Eve may have been mistaken over Cain's identity, her naming of Cain, it bears witness to her faith and to her regeneration. I believe she was a true believer. She fully believed that in fulfillment of God's promise, God had given her this son. God had given her a gospel promise, and she hung her faith on that promise. And previously, under the serpent's influence, she had a very different attitude. She questioned God's word, but now she is being shaped by God's word. And a little slender piece of revelation, what a little piece our first parents had. But she hung her faith on that little bit of revelation of a coming seed. And what Adam and Eve had, it contained a promise about a coming savior. And by clothing their, their bodies with, with skin, they had the picture, you see, of, of blood being shed and a substitute animal and they're dying in their behalf. And so I fully believe that Adam and Eve had received eternal life through faith in the Lord. Well, this is what we read about the birth of the first of these two sons. And we come now to the second son, Abel. Now concerning Abel, we simply read in verse 2, Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. In the Hebrew, Hebel. Now the Hebrew word by which he was named, Hebel, it means vapor or breath. As in Job 7 and verse 16, it's translated that way. And this word, it was made famous by the phrase that occurs again and again, the book of Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities. Now, it's hard to imagine naming your son a breath or vanity. And this is a theme that runs through the scripture, but still, it's hard to imagine that this would be the case, that they would name their child that. Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Same word is used there, Psalm 144. What is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away, James 4, 14. But here in Genesis 4, 2, the name is prophetic. It reflects Abel's short-lived existence. He was just like a little vapor, a very brief life that he had here upon earth. And nevertheless, at first, Abel's birth doubled Eve's joy. She had now become the mother of two sons, hope welled high in the first family. And although both children were the physical descendants of Eve, spiritually they were descendants of two different spiritual lines. 1 John 3.12 tells us that Cain was of the evil one, and so he is the first in the long line of the serpent's spiritual descendants. And on the other hand, Abel was a truly righteous man who's depicted in Hebrews 11 as having true saving faith. Well, so far, we've seen from this tale, the tale of two sons, it involved two births. And now, more briefly, in the second place, we also see it involved two occupations. In the second half of verse 2, we read, Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Now, both of these occupations were honorable occupations. Cain was a tiller of the ground, and the fall had not changed the fact that Adam was a tiller of the ground. And no doubt, this was the first occupation he knew, and he taught that occupation to his son. They both were farmers. But unlike his brother, Abel was a shepherd, and this suggests the existence now of domesticated animals. And since humans were not at this point meat eaters, this didn't happen until after the flood, Abel shepherding it must have been to produce milk and wool and skins. And in these two sons, we see both sides of the cultural mandate that was given right at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1 about subduing the earth, Cain tilled the ground, and about ruling the creatures. Abel managed animals. 
And the spiritual difference between them, it's not indicated that in, in their occupations, as if one occupation is better than the other. They were both appointed by God. And this just reminds us that even in our fallen world, there are many people that don't know the Lord that are a great benefit to us. They have occupations that bring blessing to God's people. Even the spiritual offspring of the serpent, they perform valuable work. When I fly in a plane, I don't like to do it anymore, but if it happens, it's a wonderful thing to have an airline pilot. Doesn't have to be, I'd rather have a, a competent pagan that knows what he's doing piloting that plane than an ignoramus Christian piloting that plane. And so that man with his natural, natural uh, what they call common grace, he's logged thousands of hours and I depend upon him. And the automatic mechanic that I take my, my car to, I don't know if that man is a believer, and yet I'm thankful that he troubleshoots the car and he, he saves me money and gets the job done. And so even in a fallen world, there can be, in the common grace of God, blessings that come through the canes of this world doing their jobs. Well, so far, our story has been a tale of two sons. And this is then followed by a tale of of two offerings. And we read of this in verses 3 through 5. And no doubt, many interesting stories could be told about the upbringing of these first two sons and about the earliest development of society in their home. But it's noteworthy that the Bible doesn't tell us any of these stories. It doesn't tell us how, oh, how, oh, did you see how this was a wonderful thing that the Cain figured out how to make a little trap to catch birds. You don't read any stories, you see, like that, about how they grew up, like you would in an ordinary biography of, of people, other biographies that we read. But the Bible focuses on the most important thing, and that is the relationship of these two boys to God. It, it, it's just like nothing else matters. This is the thing that the Bible focuses on. The most important development in anybody's life is this, it's your relationship to God. Nothing compares with that. Young people, you spend a lot of time, you study for exams, you prepare for a career, you put in hours and weeks and years. You tend to be invested emotionally in your hope that you're going to find the, the, your life's soulmate. But you can have a wonderful, prosperous career. And you can have what the world calls a soulmate for your partner. And then you can spend an eternity in hell. In hell, I want to ask you, do you think it's going to be any comfort to you in hell that you had a good job, that you had a wonderful career, that you enjoyed a soulmate here? Do you think it's going to be any, any comfort to you in hell that you had the American dream? Rich man in, in, in Luke chapter 16, he's tormented. He's not comforted by what he enjoyed in the past. He wishes just for a drop of water in the midst of his suffering. And there's absolutely nothing that even comes close to the right, this issue of whether or not you have a right relationship with God. That's the focus that's given at the only focus in this account of Cain and Abel. Now it's significant that fallen man still had access to God outside the garden. Now about this, we were told very little. Did they pray together as a family? We're not told. But we're told here, it pertains to their bringing offerings to God. And so we read in verses 3 and 4, In the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. Now the Hebrew word that's used here for offering, mincha, it's used in the rest of the Old Testament to refer to a wide variety of offerings. And this included grain offerings as well as offerings of animals. And therefore, because it's used in such a broad way, we can't assume that an offering of grain or vegetables that was grown from the ground on the part of Cain, that there's something about vegetables that nauseates God, or he doesn't like that, he doesn't want that, it's, it's intrinsically displeasing to him. We can't assume that. 
They were, the grain offerings were pleasing to God. They were presented in the right way. And also we're not told where these offerings were offered. Maybe they were offered at the gates of the garden where they, had, they were shut out. Maybe they built an altar somewhere. We're just not told. What we are told is that these offerings were brought in the process of time. And a literal translation would be at the end of the days. Maybe God had given, he assigned a particular time in which offerings were to be brought. We don't know exactly. But the fact that they brought their respective offerings at the same time, at the end of time, at the process of time, it seems to indicate that there was some instruction about when they were to bring these offerings to the Lord. Maybe they got instructions from their father. But whatever the case, it appears that they knew more than what the text says about the timing and, and where these offerings were to be brought. And it's never been the case that with reference to his worship, God just lets sinners make it up as they go. We can assume that something was told them about how they were to worship God. Now the story turns on God's response to their respective offerings. In the beginning of verse 4 we read, And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. So here we have two different sons, two different offerings, and two dramatically different outcomes. Now how did God make known whether or not he was accepted each offering? Sometimes in the Old Testament God sent fire down and consumed an offering to show that it was accepted by God. Well, we don't know if that happened here. We don't know how he showed that he was accepting of one offering, but not the other. Whatever the case, his acceptance or non-acceptance, it was clearly known by these two brothers. But the burning question here is the why question. Why did God accept one offering, but not the other offering? Now, with respect to this passage, this is the question that provokes all kinds of, all kinds of controversy among scholars. And there are three answers that commentators often bring. And instead of giving them as answers, I put them in the form of questions. And so this is kind of like a, a multiple choice test I'm going to give you here. You have three choices. And the thing that complicates it is that maybe more than one answer is right. Maybe none of them is right. You know how those tests are. You can't just guess and, and hope that maybe 33% of the chance one of them is right and you got the right one. So there are three questions and I want you to think about them as to whether you would put yes beside each of these questions. The first is this, was it his faith? And here we need to turn to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse four. And so I invite you to turn with me to that place. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse four. And this provides us with a very definitive answer to this question. Now this grand chapter, we have a description of one person after another who was famous for his or her faith. And it's interesting that in Faith's Hall of Fame, the very first one is Abel. And in verse 4, we read, Hebrews eleven four, By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead, still speaks. Now, this is a very valuable commentary on what we're reading here in Genesis. Certainly then, it's correct to say that at least one factor that commended Abel's offering to God was the faith from which it proceeded. He brought this offering, this sacrifice, by faith, this tells us. And by implication, we can deduce that this kind of faith was missing from Cain's offering. Now this raises the question, however, as to whether this faith was the only feature that distinguished Abel's offering in the sight of God. Was there anything about the offering itself that distinguished his offering in the eyes of God? Did Abel's faith direct him to bring one kind of offering as opposed to another kind of offering? Now, there are some writers that argue that Abel's faith was just simply an internal matter. He just believed God, he just had some faith, and it had nothing to do with the choice of offering and what he brought to the Lord. But here in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 4, we have another definitive word. 
It says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. It wasn't just his faith, but there was something about the sacrifice itself. His faith led him to offer a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. And this verse, it plainly indicates there's something about the sacrifice that pleased God. And by implication, we infer that there was something about Cain's offering that did not qualify it as an excellent sacrifice that would be pleasing to God. This sends us back to Genesis chapter 4 to see if there's something about Abel's offering that was missing from Cain's offering. So the you can, in your little test here, you can fill in the dot, yes, for the first one. Yes, it was by faith, and this faith somehow affected the offering that he offered. So coming back now to Genesis chapter 4, we ask a second question. Was it its cost? Is this something that was pleasing to God? In Genesis chapter 4 and verse 3, we read that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord, whereas in Verse 4, we read that Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. Now the contrast in this place, it involves the fact that Abel offered the first and best portion of his flock, whereas it's not said that Cain offered his best. Abel is said to have given the firstborn, which was especially valued in Hebrew culture. And this is also evident, the fact that there was something that was special that cost him more, and the assertion in verse 4 that Abel offered up the fatty portion of the animal. And this is mentioned later in the Old Testament as especially pleasing to God. And these fatty portions, they were forbidden to eat. The Israelites were not to eat the fat. And maybe it's because of the repeated assertions again and again throughout the book of Leviticus. I can give you a whole string of texts in Leviticus that the fat, just like the blood, belongs to the Lord. You're not to eat the fat, you're not to drink the blood. It belongs to the Lord. It's something special about it that God claims. And this fat, it was burned on the altar. And the smoke that resulted from the burning of the fat is especially said in the Old Testament to have been a pleasing aroma to God. I think it's significant that this is mentioned, that he brought the fat. Now Cain's unbelief is seen in the mere outward nature of his offering. As Leupold comments, it is evident that the one gave because it was the time and the custom to give, pure formalism, whereas the other gave the best, pure, devout worship. Franz Dalich, he adds this, Abel's thanks came from the depth of his heart, whilst Cain merely offered his to keep on good terms with God. So Abel's just offering things formally. He just, he just grabs a few things, a few vegetables, and brings it, and he offers it to the Lord and expects that the Lord is going to be pleased. Now, what we stress, the fact that Abel gave the most valuable, the most costly part to God, I want to make sure I'm not being misunderstood. We're not saying that if you give a lot of money to God, God's really pleased with that because you, you had to sacrifice more. And you're going to go to heaven for sure because you, you really dug deep. So you bought your way into heaven. Absolutely not. This is a, a, a terrible doctrine. God, God's grace can't be purchased with money. Instead, what we're saying is that when there is true faith, dear people, it will affect the way we worship. Our worship is not in spirit and in truth, as Jesus puts it in, in, in John 4, if we merely worship with just our feet and our hands and we don't worship from the heart. It, it, it's the sacrifice of the heart, you see, when we worship the Lord. This is what's pleasing to God. Heartfelt praise to God. Heartfelt confession of sin. Sincere desires from the heart to serve God and give all the glory to him. Cain's offering, you see, was just a perfunctory act. Abel's offering was the expression of his heart. And because this is so, he sought to give God the best. And the prophet Gad told David to erect an altar on the threshing floor of Arana. Arana offered to give the king his threshing floor. And he says, furthermore, I'll give you the oxen, I'll give you the wood to, to offer the offering to the Lord to stop the plague. But David said, no. 
but I will surely buy it from you for a price. For I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which cost me nothing. And so we come now to this second question. What do we answer? Was this cost in some way involved? And with this, we also fill in the circle and say yes. In some respects, we say yes to this question. Because of the saving faith that was in Abel's heart, he sought to worship God with his best. And this brings us now to the most important and final of the three questions. Was it his, its blood? Now, whereas Cain brought an offering that was the fruit of his work, Abel brought the bloody offering of a lamb that was slain. Now, we know that the lamb that he brought was slain because our text says, in particular, that he offered up his, its fat, unto the Lord. And later on, it's the burning of the fat on the altar that's said to be especially pleasing to the Lord. Now, we're not told that he offered the lamb as a burnt offering. We don't know that for sure. But it's very possible because the offering of the fat is connected with the offering of the animal when it's also burnt on the altar. Well, here's the essence of the difference, though, between the religion of the two seeds, the two lines of, of humanity. The one line offers the fruit of its own labors. The other comes by faith, trusting in the gift of substitutionary atonement. I'm already betraying my answer to this question, you see. And it's not that Cain, he didn't have any kind of faith. It's that his faith was in his works. You know, he had, he, he always said, believe in yourself. That's the kind of faith that he had. And when God didn't accept the fruit of his labors, he was angry. He, he was mad at God because God didn't believe in him as much as he believed in himself. And so that's not saving faith, just to believe in yourself. Abel, on the other hand, he came to God with a realization that none of his works were sufficient as an offering to God for his sins, and that only the offering of a substitute a substitute that had given up its life in a bloody, violent death. Only this would suffice. Now, this doesn't mean that other offerings have no place or, or, or expressions of worship. James Boyce, he writes, the offering of Cain represents all the beautiful things of this world that God has given to us and which you and I would like to offer back to him. And so we could say, well, beautiful things. Maybe I'll offer a beautiful sanctuary that I paid for or offer some beautiful music, some special music that I practiced real hard on. Or I, I'll offer beautiful flowers to put up in front of the pulpit or beautiful poems. All kinds of things that we think are really attractive and beautiful in our eyes. And surely the Lord must be pleased with these beautiful things. The offering of the woman who broke open her vial of perfume and anointed Jesus for the day of burial. This was beautiful. And it wasn't anything wrong. It was, it was commended by, by the Lord Jesus. So there are other expressions of worship offering beautiful things unto the Lord, this or that sort. But then Boyce goes on to say this. It is possible for us to offer these to God, these beautiful things, but only if we have first come to him on the basis of the sacrifice of Christ. If Cain had first presented the animal sacrifice thereby confessing that he was a sinner, that sin requires death, and that he was thankful to God for showing him that a substitute could die in his place, and that was his coming on that basis. And then he also presented his offering of fruit, saying in effect, God, I love you so much. I wanted you to have this extra offering as well. God would have accepted the fruit without question and would have said, I love you too, Cain. But that's not the way Cain came. He didn't come as a sinner pleading for grace. He came as somebody thinking he'd done something beautiful and God should have been pleased. Here I come back to our opening illustration by way of Beethoven's Eroica. Just as the themes of Beethoven's massive symphony are present in the simplest form in the first eight seconds of the, of the piece, so it is here. In addition to the promised seed, the division of humanity to two lines, here in the simplest terms is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. 
The whole story of redemption, it centers on our faith, on the atoning blood of Jesus shed for our sins. We read in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And in Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And throughout the rest of the Bible, with gradually increasing clarity, progressively the Bible points to the only atoning death that actually satisfies the demands of God, and it's that which Jesus offered for our sin. And here outside the garden, Abel offers a lamb for his sins. And later on at the Passover, a lamb was offered for the redemption of each family. And later on the Day of Atonement, a sacrifice was slain for the whole nation of Israel. And at the last, a lamb of God himself, he was offered up on our behalf on Calvary. A lamb, a lamb, a lamb, a lamb. You see the connection here. And to say that this lamb had no meaning here, it's just an expression of faith. When all the way through the Bible, the Lamb of God is being prefigured and developed. It's like the opening bars of that symphony. It's little, it seems like it's insignificant, but it's there. Now, many commentators, they reject this interpretation of Abel's offering. In fact, most do. They point out what we have mentioned earlier, that the word used in Genesis 4 for offering is used for all kinds of offerings in the Old Testament that were acceptable to God. But here I want to just briefly pass on two answers to this objection that Richard Phillips gives in his excellent commentary. The first, briefly, is the example of God himself in providing the coats of skin for our first parents after the fall. I don't have time to go over what we preached and how we opened that up before, but Adam and Eve, they were given the small bits of revelation that we read in this account but they were expected to latch on to those little bits of revelation by faith and to respond accordingly. And about these skins that were provided, the great evangelist George Whitfield, he asked this, what were the coats that God made to put on our first parents but types of the application of the merits of the righteousness of Jesus Christ to believers' hearts? We are told that these coats were made of the skins of beasts. Those beasts were slain and sacrifice, in commemoration of the great sacrifice, Jesus Christ, thereafter to be offered. And the skins of the beasts thus slain be put on Adam and Eve. They were hereby taught how their nakedness was to be covered with the righteousness of the Lamb of God. So we have to ask, some people will just say, well, that's just primitive interpretation. The scholars don't agree with it, all the rest. Who, who, know, who cares what the scholars say? What about the Bible? What's the theme of the Bible? What are these themes that are coming out now just in little bits and pieces and being expanded upon throughout the rest of the Bible? And we ask this, therefore, if Abel had not been taught the rudiments of the gospel, that salvation comes now through shed blood, the shed blood of a substitute, why, if he wasn't taught this, why does he bring a lamb? Why does he kill that lamb? Why does he take the fat out as a special indication of offering it to the Lord? Lambs were not used for food now. He didn't bring it because he was going to have a fellowship meal with God. Why did he shed the blood of this lamb? And if you question whether blood was shed again, the fat, it, it, they didn't have liposuction back then to get fat out. It had to be killed to get that fat. So there's this offering of the skins, or the, the skins by which God clothed the, the first pair that would have given them a hint. And it seems like Abel took the hit. But then in Hebrews 11 and 4, coming back now to that text, it emphasizes the faith by which Abel's offering was a more acceptable sacrifice. And then it adds these significant words, through which he was commended as righteous. He was justified by this faith. And what is justifying faith? Is it faith in the wonderful works that I just did? Oh, I brought a wonderful gift. I brought this stuff that I grew for you, Lord. That's justification by works. He was justified by faith. The difference pertained to their acceptance before God. Hebrews 11.4 tells us that by faith, Abel was justified before God. And such justifying faith, it has to rest in the atoning work of a substitute. 
and not in one's own works that are being presented before the Lord. And I would just add to Philip's arguments that, you know, I, I would just ask a question. Why do you want to take the gospel out of the Bible? I, I just don't understand these interpreters. They're always trying to be scholarly, and they find they're, they're more impressive, you see, if they don't act like they're going to find the gospel everywhere. I like to find the gospel everywhere I can find it, where it's truly there. Well, having set forth this story, our time is basically up. I just want to mention briefly the doctrine that comes out of this. God's acceptance of Abel and his sacrifice, it expresses in primitive form the grand doctrine of justification by faith. This is the heart of the gospel. This is what we have right at the very beginning of the Bible. It tells us that the only way by which we may be accepted by a holy God is through his sacrifice, through a substitute. And it's only by accepting Christ and his finished work on the cross and by receiving that by faith that you are forgiven. It is only through trusting in him that you will have forgiveness of sins. It is only by trusting in him by faith and his shed blood that you will have acceptance before God. We can never be accepted by God, by our works, however fine they may be. You see, Cain failed to see this. He thought that what he presented to God was beautiful. God should be impressed. Look, God, I have lots of blisters on my hands. I got all these blisters from these hoeing, hoeing, and I really worked hard for this. Don't you, aren't you, don't you like what I worked to do for you? God said, no. You're putting your trust in the wrong thing, Cain. I won't accept it. And by way of contrast, it was when Abel came to God bearing the blood of a substitute that the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. Genesis 4.4. Anticipating that that blood would be shed and would be shed on Calvary, the only blood that can truly atone for our sins, Abel's bloody sacrifice, anticipating that ultimate sacrifice, it was received, therefore, and regarded by God. And Cain's anger, verse 5, is a dead giveaway of the state of his proud heart. He gets mad at God because God didn't like what he did. He's bitter. He's angry. Why are you angry, God says? Why is your face fallen? You do well. Will you not be accepted, God asks in the following verses. If you came to me the right way, you would be accepted as well. God offers forgiveness. He offers acceptance to every one of you here this afternoon. He points to the sacrifice of his son, offered up perfectly on the cross. And you don't need to bring a sacrificial lamb now. God points to the sacrificial lamb that he offered up on Calvary in your behalf. And he asks those of you who have not yet believed, why do you not come? Why are you not trusting? Why are you not honoring this sacrifice that I have, that I have provided? You don't even have to bring this sacrifice. Why do you not receive that which I freely offer to you, that which I freely give to you? Well, Hebrews 11, it concludes by saying through faith, 11 verse 4, through faith, though he died, yet he speaks. The gospel of justification by faith is still preached by Abel and what he did, the faith that was expressed by his trusting and shed blood and symbolically in that which would truly be the shedding of blood that would take away sin. During all the long centuries between him and the coming of Jesus, the faith of Abel preached the gospel to the rest of the people. And now that Christ has come, now he still speaks of God's atoning grace, and he speaks with power, and I trust, I hope that with power and grace, he has spoken to your heart as well this afternoon. And so we confess, as we sang before we began this sermon, not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not all the work I did in the field can save my soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. No other work save thine no other blood will do, no strength 
save that which is divine can bear me safely through. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you that we have this glorious book beginning with simple truths expressed so simply and briefly developed so fully and amazingly as we continue to read. We pray that you would help us to have renewed appreciation for what we hold in our hands. But above all, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to especially treasure the fact that we have not just the anticipation in a vague way of a coming Redeemer, but we have a Savior who's already come. We have one who's already shed his blood and who now presents that blood unto you. We come, O Lord Jesus, trusting not in our works, but trusting alone in you, that we might have righteousness put to our account because of your righteousness, which you worked out on our behalf in your life and in your death. Lord, we pray that some poor soul here that's toiling away, hoping for a better life and hoping to get ahead, would come to the place where that person, like Manasseh that we heard of earlier, would come to see that sin has been committed and they are sinners and they need a Savior. Above all, they need a Savior who died to save people from their sins. We pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Thank you.